in our study last year, in the, as we studied through the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the author's most well-known comments is there is nothing new under the sun. And if you've been around a church long enough, you discover that each and every week there really is nothing new under the sun. The, the worship, the, the praise that we, we sing, the offerings that we give, the preaching that we hear, the fellowship that we experience, it, it's just week in and week out. There's really nothing new under the sun. It's, it's ordinary. And yet... God in his word has made it clear that this is a part of our lives as Christians, that this is what we do week in and week out. We gather together and we gather together because we have a very important purpose in mind, and that is to draw near to God and to draw near to one another. And in the process of doing that, we hear words of truth again and again and again. What Devin, what Devin just prayed is prayers that have been prayed many times before. And, and the hope of your pastors each and every week is that you go home more aware of God's love for you. Now, scripture says that He who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little. And when we, over time, tend to grow either cold or distant or just kind of shallow towards the gospel, towards the realities that we sang this morning about Jesus dying for our sins, when that happens, um, our, our lives feel the impact of that. And so... I just want you to know, I am so grateful for Devin each week as he stands here and he leads us to remember God's work through his son, Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that it, it affects you. It affects you. That you, you walk away well aware of the truth that God loves you. That it's been demonstrated that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not give us all good things? That, that's truth. And so as we, as we once again look into God's word, um, there's, this is the word of God. It's God speaking to you. It's, it's not Larry Malament with, with some great incredible insight into God's word. It is God's word, and God is the one who reveals by his Holy Spirit. God is the one who speaks. God is the one who, who intervenes in your life. And so, so hear these words this morning as we dive into the book of Esther. By, by way of review, Esther is a story particularly about two Jewish people, Esther and Mordecai, who are exiled in Persia along with a host of other Jews. These characters Esther and Mordecai, really, they have no awareness of God. They, they give no allegiance to God, and ultimately, they, they never give credit to God for all that he does on their behalf. But it's, but it's a fascinating story. Oh, it's been a fascinating story because although God is never mentioned once in the book, his hand is evident everywhere as we see him working providentially in the lives of each of the characters who who make up this unique story. 
In chapter 1, we, we learned about the foolish and wise king of Persia, Ahasuerus, who, who throws a big feast to, to honor himself. And during the feast, he, he tries to parade his wife, Queen Vashti, in front of his nobles. Uh, but she refuses to do that. She refuses to be a, just an object of their gawking. And so he overreacts. He seriously overreacts. He becomes enraged. And he ends up banishing her from his kingdom forever. And then in chapter 2, after Queen Vashti is gone and the king realizes with regret the mistake he has made, he says, I need a new king. And so he goes throughout the entire kingdom and he brings in all of these virgins, these beautiful young virgins to determine which one is going to become the new queen. And so they, they all come to the capital city of Susa where the palace is, where King Ahasuerus is, is located, and they each bed the king for a night. They, they display their sexual favors to the king to see which one pleases him the most, and Esther pleases him the most. Ultimately, she is chosen, but she is told by her cousin Mordecai, who raised her, her older cousin, not to reveal her Jewishness. And so she enters the king and lives as a Gentile. And in this chapter, we also see in chapter, chapter 2 that Mordecai discovers a plot against the king. That these two eunuchs, Teresh and, and Bigtha, are planning to murder the king by the king's gate. And so Mordecai tells the king and the king, is, is, his life is spared, but the king does nothing about it. The king just goes on his way. And then in chapter 3, this man comes on the scene. In every good story, you have what is known as a protagonist, the good person. And then you have an antagonist, the bad person. And Haman comes on the scene. And Haman is the antagonist. He is the Darth Vader of the book of Esther. And he, he comes on the scene. And he is... He is suddenly, out of nowhere, he is elevated to the position of the second most powerful man in the kingdom. Mordecai, who works at the king's gate, who works in the king's service, is there when Haman comes, down, comes by, and everybody bows down to Haman but Mordecai. And oh, is Haman enraged. Haman is a man who, who, who just seeks after honor. And in his anger, in his anger towards Haman, he petitions the king to kill. He doesn't say the Jewish people. He says a certain group of people. He doesn't tell the king who. He just says, listen, there are, there's this certain group of people and they're going to destroy your kingdom. So we must kill them. And the king, who is an idiot, goes ahead and he signs the petition. And so a year later is the plan when all the Jews throughout the entire Persian kingdom, which is 127 provinces, from India to Ethiopia, from the, the entire Middle East, those Jews will all be put to death. They will be annihilated. And when the petition is granted, Mordecai learns about it, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he mourns at the king's gate. Esther hears about it. She, she tells him, go and have a fast, and, and Mordecai does, and Esther is, is challenged by, by Mordecai, go and talk to the king on our behalf. And Esther does, she, she risks her life to go to the king. And what does she do? Does she plead with the king to save the Jewish people? No, she holds a party. 
And she only invites two people. And those two people are Ahasuerus the king and Haman, Darth Vader. That's who is at this party. And that's where we pick up. And I'm going to read at the end of chapter 9. We're going to be looking at chapter 6 today. But the end of chapter 9 is the setting for this, this story. And you will see this, this evil Darth Vader Haman come alive in a way that you haven't in chapter 6. But starting in verse 9 of chapter 5. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. The party's over. And, and he is just rejoicing because only two people were invited to the party. And he was one of them. I mean, that means something. So Haman goes out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, as he did every day, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches. Let's have a birthday party for me. And let me tell you about how great I am. You, know, you guys don't have to say a thing. I'm going to tell it all. And that's what Haman does here. And he tells him the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons. Like his wife didn't know how many sons he had. And the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him. And how he advanced above all the officials and the servants of the king. Oh, I am something special. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I'm also invited by her together with the king. It's going to happen again. Yet, yet, he says, all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So friends, family, gathered around. And here's the counsel Haman's wife gives them. Then his wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, Haman and he had the gallows made. Esther's party is over. Haman is rejoicing about how special he is to the king and queen. Only he's invited to the special feast. And as he leaves the feast, he, you know, he passes Mordecai once again. Mordecai just, Mordecai just ruins his great party experience. How could this guy do that? And his wife, obviously, she pipes in, hey, listen, here's how we're going to take care of this. We're, you're going to have a joyful time tomorrow at the party. So build a gallows. And literally, it's a, it's a pike. It's a stake. Build it and build it 75 feet high. And impale Mordecai on it. That is what you are to do. And as you walk by him, impaled on that spike and you go to the party you will be a joyful man the idea obviously pleases Haman to no end and so he erects this gallow tomorrow will be a great day now this is the setting this is where the story is left off Haman is happy Mordecai is condemned and Esther is actually unaware of all that's going on she is not aware about Haman's plot but God is 
Even in a book like Esther, where God's name is, is never mentioned and the characters in this story, including God's own people, do their best to ignore his, his existence, he refuses to be written out of the script. And so between the lines and behind the scenes, the Lord continues to work to accomplish his holy purposes. And that, that's the setting. And now, now we've got the story. And, and let me read the story to you. Look in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through to verse 14. Verse 1 of chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> and Haman said to the king, Well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Now the king's horse would have like a... a, a a decorative crown on its head to say, this is the king's horse. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them, let that noble official lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, hurry. Take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Oh, and by the way, leave out nothing that you mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring him into the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, the opening words of chapter 6 clearly link these events with the end of chapter 5. Haman, in his rage and in his self-importance, building this ridiculously oversized uh, stake on which to impale Mordecai. And, and in verses 1 through 3, the king's response is, is sleeplessness to 
He's, he can't sleep. And so what does he do? He calls for the book of memorable deeds. Now, the book of memorable deeds, it, it, it sounds more than it is. Um, it's not memorable deeds like, you know, you're reading this great C.S. Lewis novel and it's gripping. No, no, no. The book of memorable deeds is literally kind of the day-by-day life story of the king. In other words, we're chronicling what's going on in the king's life. It, it's, as, it's as interesting as reading the Montgomery County tax code. That's, that's what is going on here. And he, he has this, this book brought in, be read to him, he cannot sleep. And so what would be more boring than to have something like the Montgomery County tax code read to you and you would eventually fall asleep? And that's, what, that's what's happened here. This droning voice of one of the eunuchs just going on and on about, well, today you went to the bathroom and then after the bathroom you went and had something to eat and then you took a walk in the garden and then you came back and you laid down and then you decided to put somebody to death and then, you know, and that's just the going on and on of the book of deeds. And it, this droning is meant to put a Ahasuerus back to sleep. I know, that works. Marilyn has me read to her at night when she can't sleep. And for some reason, my droning voice puts her to sleep. Yes, I've been worried here. It could happen too. (laughs) But then as this, this memorable, book of memorable deeds is being read, he gets to Mordecai's intervention in saving his life. He learns nothing has been done to reward Mordecai. Now, this is a huge mistake on Hashrush's part because Persian kings were noted for their generosity to those who had served them well. And to do nothing for Mordecai, that that looks incredibly bad on the king's part. And so you understand the impetus, the motive behind Ahasuerus suddenly, hey, we got to do something for this man because I don't want to look bad. It wasn't about Mordecai as it is about the king. And then in verses 4 through 5, we read as the king finishes this account and the king said, well, who's in the court? This, you know, we've got to do something for Mordecai. Who's in the court? Now, Haman just happens to enter the court. So here comes, here comes Haman. He just happens to show up just as the king finishes. And while the king has been up all night, unable to sleep, most likely Haman has been as well. Making sure, number one, that the gallows are built. And secondly, he wants to get to the king as quickly as possible so he can get permission to immediately put Mordecai to death. He wants Mordecai dead. And so Haman comes to talk about Mordecai. And the king wants Haman to come in so he can talk about Mordecai. <laughs> They're just going to be talking about two very different things. And then in verses 6, 6 through, through 10, so Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Oh, what a great question. He poses that question, and what should we do? And this is the moment where I think Esther is deliciously humorous. It is, it is, the, most, it is the best part of the entire book because Ahasuerus leaves out some really crucial information. What should we do for the man the king delights to honor? 
Not a word about Mordecai. Not a word. Now, it's interesting when the, the reversal here, when, when Haman goes to the king and he asks the king for permission to annihilate the Jews, he doesn't say, I want to annihilate the Jews. He leaves out important material. He says, I just want to annihilate a certain people. And so the king leaves this out. And then in verses 8 through 10, we see the king does not, the king let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Oh, oh my. I mean, the setup here is perfect. I mean, this, this is a good writer. This guy knows how to set, set a scene. So while, while the king is thinking of Mordecai, Haman is thinking um, of himself. And Haman, Haman says to himself earlier in verse 7, he says, whom the king delights to honor. And Haman, Haman's thinking, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, this is the first time in the entire book where we see omniscience, where we see something being said about the motive of a person speaking to himself. Where God, you, you get a sense of God at that moment. Because only God knows what we say to ourselves. Only God is aware of what we're thinking. Only God is aware of the thoughts and, and intentions that go through our heart. And that is what is happening here. So here's, here's this little snapshot of, okay, wait a minute. You know what? The author is letting us know God, God is involved here. Because he knows what Haman is thinking. Who else could the king possibly be thinking of? So, so Haman, what does he do? He suggests the highest possible honor. Oh, oh, well, it's going to be about me. So how much can we do? How much can we get away with? I, I, and so back in, the, back in the 60s, and actually, you probably would need to be in your 60s to remember what I'm about to share. Back in the 60s, there was a daytime show called Queen for a Day. Does anybody remember that show, Queen? Yes, see, good. You're aging yourself gracefully. Um, that it was, it, was a, it was a show where, it's one of these game shows where a housewife would win all these prizes and a, a day of special treatment where she would be queen for a day. Uh, that is what is going in Haman's mind. Haman immediately begins dreaming of being king for a day because he already has wealth. He already has material possessions. He already has positions in the kingdom. So what he wants is glory. He wants self-exaltation. That is what he is after. And so he has just spent probably about 60 seconds on Fantasy Island dreaming about being honored. And then that dream suddenly turns into a nightmare. Great idea, Haman. Oh, I love all of the things you've laid out. Those are really good things. Do that. Exactly, do everything exactly for, pause, Mordecai. Mordecai's name is revealed at the last possible moment. And the shock to Haman is 
felt on these pages. Listen, the last time we saw Mordecai, he was wearing sackcloth and ashes. And now, because of Haman's idea, he is wearing royal robes and riding on a royal horse. Now, what would you give to have seen Haman's face at that moment? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, and, and I, I, do not, I do not watch the Oscars. Um, I did many years ago. I do not now. Um, but watching the Oscars many years ago, and you'd see the, the five finalists for, you know, best actor, and, and they would, you know, they'd all be big smiles, you know, and, and then the person who won their name would be, and they would jump up, you know, in tears, and the other four people would be there like this. <laughs> you know that plastered smile that, that because TV's keeping them on that they have to show something but in reality they're, they're doing Haman what? him? That, that's what's happening here oh if we can only see what a great way to tell this story and what a shocking reversal in the plan of God oh, oh and it only gets better because the king tells Haman, he, sa- oh, he tells Haman, okay, Haman, listen, hurry up. <laughs> hurry up. Do- I don't want you delaying. I don't want you, hey, no, 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 don't drag your feet, Haman. Hurry up. Hurry up, my friend. Hurry up and take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Oh, and just to make sure, he goes, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Leave out nothing. And so, Mordecai is approached by Haman. Haman is carrying royal robes and he's leading a royal horse. And Mordecai takes off the sackcloth and Haman lays on him the royal robes and helps him up on the royal horse. And then Haman takes the rein of the horse and he leads them, he leads him through the capital city of Susa all day long before all the crowds. And Haman is the one saying, this is the man whom the king delights to honor again and again and again all day Long. The words in Haman's mouth must have tasted bitter like gravel in the mouth. But it gets worse. <laughs> in verses 12 and 13, Haman, Haman goes home. It's done. Hey, Mordecai goes back to the gate. Not in the king's robes anymore. He puts on the sackcloth because the time of of fasting is not over yet. So he goes back to the gate, humbly where he is. What does does Haman do? Well, Haman, he goes, so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. The day is over. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. (laughs) I don't want anybody to know it was me doing this. 
And then Haman calls all his friends again. Remember at the end of chapter 5, he calls all his friends. Hey, let me tell you about how great I am. <laughs> and now look at the reversal. He calls all his friends and he says to them, and told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, well, they knew he was of the Jewish people at the end of chapter 5 because Haman was telling them, I hate Mordecai the Jew. So why are they suddenly, well, you see the work of God. If they are of the Jewish people, you will not overcome. You will not, but you will surely fall before them. In other words, <laughs> this, is, this is Zeresh. After all her counsel to build the pike, uh, kill Mordecai, you know, do, do all that you need to do. And now this is Zeresh's counsel. You're dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's over. This is the time Haman got not one bit of comfort. And so that's, that's the story. So we have the setting, we have the story, but there are in, in this chapter incredible amount of the surprising hidden providences of God in this chapter. One, one commentator uses the word peripety. Peripety. All right, so you know how to spell it, peripety. What does peripety mean? Because that's the word he uses to describe this chapter. Peripety means this. It means a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected or intended outcome. A sudden turn of events that reverses the expected or intended outcome. This is what happens in Esther 6. Peripety. You, you want to see the turnabout? All you have to do is say peripety. That's what it is. A sudden, unexpected turn of events. That is what is happening. But it's not because of some dramatic intervention by God. That is what the author wants you to know. It's not some dramatic happening. The peripety or pivot point of this chapter and the entire book of Esther actually is the most seemingly un important, insignificant, ordinary event. And it's in verse 1 of chapter 6. This is what the whole book hinges on. On the night the king could not sleep. That's it. That's the entire hinge of the book right there. That's the pivot point. That's the periphery. The king could not sleep. Not fire rain, and rain down on people. The Red Sea parted. A staff turned to a snake. A river turned to blood. No. The king could not sleep. Rather than some miraculous intervention as we see in Exodus, Ahasuerus can't fall asleep. There's no apparent reason for this given either uh, other than God's sovereign purpose is coming to pass. In the Greek version of the book of Esther, this verse reads this way. The Lord took sleep from the king that night. We, we should find great encouragement, brothers and sisters, in the book of Esther because our lives are much more like the story of Esther than they are the story of Exodus. 
Because God in our lives uses ordinary and insignificant events every day to fulfill his promises to us, to, to make sure his will is accomplished in our lives. He does it in ways that we don't even, are even aware of. And let me read you a story. Greer Epstein never took breaks. An executive director at Morgan Stanley, she rarely left her office on the 67th floor because she never had time. But 20 minutes before 9 a.m., one of her buddies called. How about getting a cigarette? He wanted to talk about an upcoming work meeting. It was a calm day with clear blue skies, the most beautiful day she had seen from her view of the World Trade Center. Epstein figured, why not? While riding down the elevator, she felt a jolt, but ignored it since the elevators always acted strangely. When she stepped outside to light up her Benson and Hedges, she saw people frozen in place, their eyes fixed to the sky. Paper rained down like chaotic confetti. As she stared at the fire and smoke billowing from the North Tower, she wondered, how do they fix something like that? And that's when she saw another plane fly directly into her office in the South Tower. A cigarette break saved her life. The writer of the article goes on to say, every day people make thousands of small, forgettable decisions. What to eat, when to take a break, which route to take to work. But for a handful of people on September 11, 2001, those seemingly inconsequential decisions, stepping out for a smoke, dawdling on the commute to enjoy a beautiful morning, taking a different subway route, even waking up late because of the previous night's football game on TV, made the difference between living and dying. Brothers and sisters, God... God uses ordinary events in our lives just the way he's using ordinary events in the life of Esther and Mordecai, in the life of this king and this evil man, Haman. Peripety! Look at all of the, the incredibly ordinary happen, happening that go on in this book. Verse 6, six one. it just so happens the king cannot sleep. 6, 1, again, it just so happens that the book being read to him tells of Mordecai's actions. <laughs> the entire chapter of, of this, this chapter 6 has a series of, of seemingly trivial circumstances that fit together to overrule the evil intentions of Haman. It just so happens the king discovers he's done nothing to reward, reward Mordecai. Verses 4 and 5, it just so happens that Haman shows up at this early hour. Verse 6, it just so happens that Haman is a noble who's able to give the king advice. Chapter 7, it just so happens that Haman has the perfect answer to the king's request. Verse 9, it just so happens that Haman is there available to be the noble that leads Mordecai through the city on the king's horse. It just so happens that all of this happens right before Mordecai is going to be killed. Beneath the surface of human decisions and actions of our daily, ordinary experiences is an unseen and, and controllable power at work. That's what Esther is, is telling us, which, which can neither be explained or it cannot be, be thwarted. It is, it is Proverbs, Proverbs 16.9 coming to life. It is Proverbs 16.9 that, 
most of us know fairly well that we would understand where the writer of Proverbs says, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or we see it again in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul, Paul writes in verse 11, in him we've obtained, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is at work. Even in exile, God's covenant people remain under his covenant because it is not about their faithfulness, it is about God's faithfulness. And he is at work in the ordinary of everyday life. Brian Gregory, in his commentary, it's a long quote, but he says this, He says, there is no event so commonplace but that God is present within it. And to acknowledge that simple but profound reality means that the details of our lives have a greater depth than we possibly can fathom, a greater significance than we could ever hope for, and a greater importance than we could ever imagine. To appreciate that is to live differently. Every day becomes a walk of faith. Every day, regardless of what it holds, becomes an opportunity for God to work. Every day is filled with potential divine appointments. Who knows what it means, what moments today will be pivotal in your life? Who knows what God might be ordaining through a phone call or email that you receive? Who knows what circumstances God is lining up in your life that you cannot see right now? Who knows what decisions will become hinges in his providential hands? And who knows, as hard as it can sometimes be to accept it, what disappointments, closed doors, and trying situations God might be using in his ever so subtle way to work out his plan for your life. Brothers and sisters, the truth is that there are no coincidences in the world or happenstances in our lives. Everything that happens is under the superintendence of our sovereign God who subtly and providentially works out his purposes even through seemingly insignificant events like a Persian king's insomnia or a common Roman cross. There is no such thing as chance or luck or accident in the Christian's journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God. Therefore, let us seek to have an abiding sense of God's hand in all that befalls us if we profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. Listen, because, we, because of our sin, we're not living in the Garden of Eden where the Lord walks and talks with us in the coolness of day. Rather, we live in the exile of this world, a world where God is unseen, a world where God has pronounced a sentence of death on us, as we see in Genesis 3, and, and because of our sin, and we should expect nothing but death. But we have, in Christ, seen the ultimate peripety. <laughs> The ultimate reversal of our expected ending. In two seemingly ordinary events, the birth of a baby and the death of that man on a Roman cross. And because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our destiny has been reversed from death to life. Because of that ordinary event. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pivot point of the greatest reversal in all of history. And so like Mordecai and the Jews, listen, like Mordecai, we were all condemned to die, not because of some 
injustice like we see in Esther, but because we are condemned to die because we're sinners and our condemnation is a just punishment. But a punishment that we do not receive because of Christ. Peripity. A great reversal. Ian Duguid, in his commentary, says, The unimaginable became reality on the cross as Jesus endured the full measure of shame and separation from God. Our sin deserved. It was our sin that required him to remain on the cross. It was our sin that exposed him to public scorn. It was our sin until his work of redeeming us by paying the full price for our sins was accomplished. He did this because he loves us. And he, and he covers every ordinary event in our lives because he loves us. You can't sleep. Yeah, it's part of just living life in this world and living with fallen bodies that, that are decaying day in and day out. And yes, they, they, they come to an end, but, but there are times we cannot sleep because God has something And if we all look back in our lives, look, look, at the, look at the ordinary events that led to your conversion to Christ. And I, I trust maybe when we get to heaven, we'll see the great line of, oh my goodness, seriously? Seriously? That guy cutting me off in traffic led to my coming to faith in Christ? No way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. God does all this because he loves us. If, if he is so willing to crucify his own son that we might find life, how much more is he willing to watch over us and care for us providentially in the ordinary events of life? The word of the Lord in Esther 6 calls us to place our confidence not in ourselves but in a far more reliable object than ourselves. It invites us, Esther 6 invites us to lift up our eyes to the hills to see where our help comes from because our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And that's what happens in Esther 6 and that's what happens in our lives each and every day. This is, this is the pattern of God's wise provision for his people that even before they know they need something, God is at work giving it to them. In, in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the godly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now shall we be reconciled because we are saved. Look what God did. While we were sinners, we weren't looking for God. We weren't looking to God. We were going our own way. And God uses used ordinary events. Now Esther wants us to place our confidence in something more reliable than ourselves, and that is the Lord. Esther also warns us. Esther has a warning for us. It is the warning of the danger of idolatry. The idolatry we see in Haman as he seeks to continually exalt himself. It becomes painfully clear that, that 
in this story, pride truly does go before a fall. And great was Haman's fall. And great will our fall be if we seek to exalt ourselves rather than Christ. Ian Duguid says this. He says, if, indeed, if we are exalting Christ as Lord in our hearts and are trusting firmly in God's providence to do what is good for our souls and to bring glory to himself, why are we so troubled? Why are we so filled with doubts and fears about our own futures or the future of our children or the future of our churches? God will accomplish his purposes, often slowly and imperceptibly, but nonetheless, certainly. Sometimes he will do it through human agents who willingly submit to him. Sometimes he will do it by directing those whose hearts are at enmity to him so that their sinful motives accomplish his perfect purposes. Sometimes he will do it through collaboration of a whole series of seemingly trivial circumstances. But in light of the great and precious promises of God, this we know for sure. Our God will save his people. In, the light, in light of the cross, we know that his salvation cannot be thwarted. In light of these heavenly realities, what is left for us to do but to bow our hearts and knees before him and sing his praises? Of course. The God who acted by his son to save us while we were still sinners, he did it in countless ways beyond our knowing. He will guard our life. He guards our life. That is what Esther 6 is telling us. We just sang this this morning, and I'll close in prayer. We sang this verse is, Ponder anew what the Lord can do. Oh, let us do that as we go home today. Let's ponder anew what the Lord can do. Father, thank you for using trivial and insignificant things in our lives just to display your love to us. Thank you that you do display your love to us. Thank you that, that you are sovereign over our lives and you care for us and you shepherd us and you protect us and you watch over us. And even in the most difficult of times, you bring all things to work together for good because you love your people. And so now, Lord, we ask as we go that you will help us simply to ponder anew all that you do. In Christ's name, amen.